This is the Final Whistle Podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team. Hi, I'm Mark Griffiths, Wrexham AFC. Welcome to another Ask Wrexham podcast where we answer your questions about Wrexham, but with a spin, because this is our World Cup special in which we answer the questions I've been coming in over the last four weeks about the World Cup. The World Cup is over. The GOAT has had his way. And now let's have a little look at some questions which relate to Wrexham and the World Cup and some that don't. If I'm looking distracted, and if you can hear a low-level buzzing on your audio, it's because I'm joined by Laszlo the Cat again, my big mate who just enjoys being on these podcasts. So you may make an appearance with the video guys in a bit, but let's crack on. Firstly, a question from Luke Perry 85 who says... How many Wrexham players have played in World Cups? And Carl gave us a very useful uh, rundown. But there's more, Carl, believe it or not. So he gave us a couple of nice examples. He gave us Dennis Lawrence and Carlos Edwards. Now, they both played for Wrexham and then played in the 2006 World Cup for Trinidad. Lawrence is the only Wrexham player who has played in a World Cup while being a Wrexham player. So there's lots of other people who have played for Wrexham and played in a World Cup that we'll go through in a minute. He is the one who has played in a World Cup while being a Wrexham player. We'll fix that soon, won't we, Paul Mullen? Hey? And Alvarez, the Argentinian striker that we'll sign from Man City eventually. Remember where you heard it first? Um, so Lawrence, who actually was a defender, but scored the goal that got Trinidad through for the only time in the history. Trinidad, I think, is still the... Oh, Qatar might have broken this record. The smallest country in terms of population that has played in the World Cup, although Qatar, of course, didn't qualify. So I think Trinidad's still the smallest country to have made it to the World Cup. He scored a winning goal in a playoff against Oman which put them through. He played in all the games as well. A real leader who was nearly appointed manager of Wrexham uh, a couple of seasons ago. And Carlos Edwards, who had left by then, but is a a true club legend, a fantastic, spacey, right-sided player who scored wonderful goals and, alongside Lauren Scott, has promoted in 2003. And before we go on to the other names on that list, I should point out that also in that squad, although we didn't make it onto the pitch, was Clayton Ince, who had a very strange career. Wrexham had a, a link with an agent, which meant that we'd signed a few Trinidadian players, and Ince played one Wrexham game for us in the Welsh Premier Cup. He was on trial at Wrexham, so he didn't sign any contracts, and we failed to sign him <coughs> because he didn't get a work permit, an issue which used to be a major thing in British football. Stopped being that when there was freedom of to Europe and will now become a major issue again because Freedom Moon to Europe has stopped, although obviously Ince would have been apart from that all the time beforehand, but we're going to see the transfer market change massively in Britain as you can't go and sign any European player you want, so the the work permit issue will become a much more prominent one. So yeah, Ince didn't get a work permit, but he did go to the World Cup in 2006 in Germany. He was third-choice keeper, didn't get onto the pitch. Uh, Now, Carl also mentioned 
the two ex-Wrexham players in the current Wales squad. So Joe Allen, who played one and a half games for us, looked magnificent and then got a season-ending injury, unfortunately, in our first season in the National League as a young lad on loan from Swansea. He looked fabulous. We talked about him, I think, last week. And Danny Ward, the goalkeeper, who played one Welsh Cup game for Wrexham in which we had to pick our youth team because we had an FA Cup tie on the same day. All very complicated. I'll go into it if you want me to sometime. And so, yeah, he played one game for us. Although Danny, like Wayne Hennessy, the other Wales goalkeeper in the squad, uh, is a Rex- well, he's a Wrexham fan and he's been seen at in the way away and at Wrexham matches this season, Warden Hennessy, cheering us on. Now then, other major players. Ron Hewitt who lived right behind my mum and dad's house, um, played for Wrexham and was a magnificent player for Wrexham at the start of his career and then moved on, played at the top level and was a regular for Wales and he played every game in the 1958 World Cup when Wales eventually were knocked out in the quarterfinals by Brazil. So Hewitt, a major, major player for Wales and a major player for Wrexham, but not at the same time, like I said. And also Stuart Williams. Stuart Williams came from Wrexham, was a youth player, played the start of his career at Wrexham, then moved on and again played in the first division, played most notably for West Brom, I think, in Southampton. And he also was a regular in that Welsh team that played in the 1958 World Cup. And in fact, Pele, in his autobiography, singles him out as having been very impressive in that World Cup quarterfinal. Uh, Also... Alan Fox, who is a true club legend, has played, what, 500-odd games for Wrexham. He was in the preliminary squad squad to go to the World Cup in 1958 for Wales, but didn't make the cut and actually never played an international game for Wales. Okay, now, moving on. When we won the LDV Vans Trophy in 2005, we had Ben Foster in goal on loan. And he played in the final group game of the 2014 World Cup for England. England had been knocked out already by Italy and Uruguay. (coughs) Their third match was meaningless. And so Foster was given a game and kept a clean sheet and a nil-nil against Costa Rica. Here is maybe the greatest Wrexham uh, World Cup story. And it's very pertinent to any American fans Ed McIlvenny, so nearly McIlhenny, isn't it? Uh, Ed McIlvenny was a Scottish footballer who moved to Wrexham. Didn't really make much of an impression with us. He did play a handful of games, but he didn't succeed. And we released him. He emigrated to the US. I'm pretty sure he emigrated to Philadelphia. I should have checked before I did this. And became an American citizen. And became captain of the US team. They qualified for the 1958 World... Hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not 58. 50 World Cup. And he captained the US against England. England had refused to play in any previous World Cup. Because they felt it was beneath them. They felt that they invented football. And why should we play in a competition that you know Europeans and South Americans have organised because they felt it was beneath them. They considered themselves to be far superior to other countries, um, and they refused to enter. 50 was the first time they entered, and in Britain, uh, they generally considered it to be inevitable England would win it. It was in Chile, the World Cup. 
No, it's in Brazil. Sorry, I'm getting mixed up here. It was in Brazil. Um, they were drawn against the US, who are mostly part-time players, and played them in Belo Horizonte, and the US won, 1-0. Uh, taxi driver Ed Gittens scored a goal. And so Ed McIlvenny, a player who'd been rejected by Wrexham, then went to the World Cup and captained the USA over their, their greatest win in many ways against a massively favoured England team, which had superstars like Stanley Matthews in it. Uh, the World Cup wasn't covered all that much, but that defeat did get some coverage. Oh, there's a famous thing where when you got used to have the scores getting like printed out on TV when technology was a bit more basic, uh, if there was like a freak score, like 10-0, they'd type you know, Wrexham 10, open brackets, and then in words, 10. Hartlepool United won. Just a shade, it's not a, a misprint. Um, they did this when they sent the results over from Brazil of this match. USA won, open brackets, O-N-E, close brackets, England nil, open brackets, N-I-L, because nobody could believe that happened. So McIlvenny, on, on the basis of this, never signed a player because of a good tournament, was signed by Manchester United, yes, and didn't make the grade as you may not be surprised to consider when he, he was released by Wrexham because he wasn't good enough. And then Man United bought him. don't know if that was the best piece of business that they, they'd ever done. Maybe the Glazers were in charge then too, eh? Now then, Dave Harding was in the Australian squad in 1970. Didn't get on the pitch, but actually Harding did have a fairly prolific international career for Australia. He was a scouser. is a scouser, as far as I'm aware, um, who played in Liverpool... In the, for Marine, actually, uh, when they were known as South Liverpool. He then signed for Wrexham. Hang on a second, Marine on South Liverpool. Oh, whatever. He played in Liverpool for South Liverpool. He then came and played for Wrexham for a bit. Um, <clears throat> did okay-ish, but what, I don't think made that much of an impression. He emigrated to Australia afterwards. Must have taken Australian citizenship, I assume. And he played in 45 internationals, a lot of games for Australia, mostly after that World Cup, though. So I think he scored about 15 goals, so yeah, decent international career. Didn't actually get set foot in the World Cup on the pitch, though. Chris Killen was on loan to us, and he played in New Zealand's three World Cup games in, I want to say, 1998, but I'm wrong, aren't I? It's something more like 2006. When New Zealand last got into the World Cup, he played all three games. Jamaica got into the World Cup in 2006. Now now we're in the realms of players who will go on to sign for Wrexham. So, to be honest, players may be coming at the end of their careers who will then go on at the end of it to, to play for us. I mean, Trevor Sinclair was a significant player in the early days of the Premier League. Um, he played for Jamaica. Uh, I think, frankly, he's certainly had Jamaican heritage. He's English. I think it's really a case of, OK, England aren't going to pick me, but I can play for Jamaica, so he chose to. And he played in all their games in the 2006 World Cup. Another person with a similar backstory, English, but chose because there was no way he was going to play for England to play for Jamaica, was Paul Hall, who is not that guy, but that guy. Sorry, I thought the pitches were in the right order. They're not. Paul Hall, um, who had a brief spell with Wrexham the season we dropped out of the Football League. Memorable, really, only for one thing. He scored a goal at Chester. We won 2-0 at Chester that season. The one bright spot of a dismal season. And a player who, if you're watching the video, you saw by accident was Patrick Sufo. Patrick Sufo signed for us the next season. Again, a player at the end of his career. He had a very serious knee injury. I did a good interview with him. I'll have to dig it out. 
where he was talking about how when he was playing for us, his knee was like the size of a basketball, he reckoned, and he couldn't move much. He clearly had a lot of quality, but he also clearly should have retired because he couldn't move around very well. Um, but he played for Cameroon in the World Cup and was actually sent off. He also played in group games and was sent off against Germany. That's your lot as far as I can think of. If there's any more I can think of, please let me know. I do know of players, I can think of three players who would have played in the World Cup but it had they not got injured. Silvio Spann, who was a full-back for us, would have played for Trinidad in 2006. Ad would have Marvin Andrews, who was signed for us a year later as an epic centre-back. Both of them were injured, they would have gone otherwise. Uh, Spann was a Wrexham player at the time, I'm thinking. I need to double-check that. Shouldn't do this on the fly. And the other one is a very interesting customer, a guy called Colin Granger, who was from Yorkshire, but moved to Wrexham and came through our youth team and was a huge prospect and played for Wrexham briefly before being snapped up by bigger clubs. He played in the first division. He played for England. By all accounts, he was a terrific player for England, but in his sixth cap, he badly hurt his ankle and was never really the same again, sadly. And so he missed out on the World Cup the next season because he just couldn't regain his form. Uh, he became a singer afterwards as well. <coughs> he has got an autobiography. He died fairly, I think it was this year, sadly. Uh, interesting customer. Interesting customer. Right, let's move on. Well, not too much, because I, I, I wanted to mention this one from uh, Stevie D, because it really sums up how Wrexham uh, football fans' minds work. He said, my Ask Wrexham's more of a rant, really. I'm still livid the way Crouch pulls the hair of Brent Sancho in the 2006 World Cup to stop him jumping to defend a header. And he said, he said it's 18, 16 years gone by. I still haven't, I haven't let it lie. Hope that's a Vic Reeves reference, in which case I salute you, Stevie. But anyway, I, I accept anyway, your, your mindset is admirable. Football fans don't forget. And Wrexham kind of adopted Trinidad. You know, we had a lot of Trinidadian players coming through this agent I mentioned before. And so Brent Sancho never played for Wrexham. In fact, well, we wouldn't know at the time, but Marvin Andrews would become a Wrexham player. He probably wouldn't have been in the squad if Andrews had been fit. However, he played and Trinidad played against England and lost, I want to say, 2-0. And Peter Crouch, and this is one of these things that, that helps to create this, you know, Peter Crouch, what a funny character he is, image that he has. Um, scored a goal which should have been disallowed where Sancho had dreadlocks which were tied back behind his head and Crouch his cross was coming in and to make sure he won the header, Crouch grabbed hold of his tied back dreadlocks and pulled down as he pulled up, so Sancho couldn't get off the ground, he headed it in I totally understand why the ref didn't spot it, you know it's not something you really naturally look out for, but yeah the goal stood, you'd like to think that VAR would have disallowed it Although, the VAR, who knows, who knows. Um, Lucy Kebble says, um, said this, uh, hang on a second. Oh, I, if you're watching on the video, I've accidentally hidden that. Oh, beg your pardon. Uh, Monaco said Wales' big mistake was not taking Paul Mullen. Lucy Kebble's is a nice one about Wrexham fans. A whiff singing uh, in Wales. Uh, fan ground, uh, what's it called? It? Fan village things. When you watch the game on the big screen, my mind's gone blank. Fan zone. Um, yeah, Paul Mullen, imagine him up front, terrifying Harry Maguire, eh? <coughs> Michelle Olsen, um, what are your takeaways from the World Cup for the future of the Welsh national team? Adjustments 
needed by 2026. Anticipated challenges. A great accomplishment to make the cup after so many years. Yeah, firstly, yeah, absolutely right. It's been a brilliant adventure and they've done ever so well. The problem for the next four-year World Cup cycle, of course, is that the players who did so brilliantly in the 2016 European Championships get into the semi-final and have done really well in the European Nations League um, probably won't be around in four years. Although Bale and Allen and Ramsey players like that appear to be saying they're going to hang around for the moment, you know, the European Championship qualifiers have begun, um, four more years really seems very, very unlikely for all of them, really. Ramsey and Bale have both had a lot of injury problems in their careers. Um, and, and latterly, Allen has, sadly. Um, so, what are the prospects? There's a lot of doom and gloom being said about Wales after the elimination. And, and yeah, we didn't live up to our expectations in the tournament. Uh, not that, thankfully, the fans turned on them because they've done brilliantly and quite rightly. You create a bond with a team like that. You don't turn on them and it doesn't go right. You keep supporting them, don't you? The issue for Wales, I think, is that they'll lose a lot of creativity when they lose those players. But a very important thing that Wales put in place before 2016 and then used that success to fund even further was youth development. A lot of coaches, high-profile coaches, do their coaching badges in Wales rather than England because Wales has established its reputation as a, a really high-quality coaching centre. And although the badges theoretically are to the same standards, you know, you're going for the same badges, it does matter in the amongst the people who are in the know where you got them from. And the Welsh courses are considered to be one of the very best in Europe. Now, that's great in terms of coach education. So you, you've got a lot of good Welsh coaches around who can support young players. And that's part of a process of trying to ensure that a lot of quality comes through. And so I'm hopeful that the regeneration will be successful. You know, admittedly, I think getting talents like Bale coming through is a bit of a good luck in some ways. You know, you, getting a superstar, well, you can't really control that in a country of a small population like Wales. But you can ensure that there's a lot of good, well-coached, solid players coming through. And, and you saw in the World Cup that organisation can be incredibly important. There was some lavishly talented players on that Moroccan side, but the thing that really tied them together was their defensive organisation. And the defensive players, you know, in terms of defensive qualities, you might argue, you know, Sice, for example, he's a good centre-back, plays in the Premier League, absolutely. But then, you know, Mepham, Rodon, are they any worse? No, I don't think so. Um, I admit Aguerd, I think, when he gets fit for West Ham, is a quality player. And I admit they have world-class full-backs, but they're world-class in many ways the way they go forwards. Um, so good structure is down to good coaching as well as decent players. Wales already have players of a level who can do that. Um, and there's players coming through like Brennan Johnson who have the ability to, to influence games and, and others. So I think it's a case of, I'm, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic because I have faith in this process of Wales becoming a really good coaching hotbed, which means lots of players are getting good guidance when they're younger and that helps to develop lots of good quality players. So I'm optimistic that another generation will come through and will augment the players who've broken into the side like Ampadu, like Wilson, who's a very talented player who didn't quite make his meet his standards, I think, at, at the World Cup. Like Nico Williams, 
um, who's still very young. Yeah, so I think there's plenty to look at. Danny Ward, who's very young for a goalkeeper and can win a lot of caps, and I think is a, a high-quality keeper. He's under a lot of pressure at Leicester because he's replacing a legend for them. But these are good players, and I, I think that there's lots of scope to add to them as young players come through. So I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, Richard R., Oh, I love this question. I've been itching to answer this. It says, after watching Spain's extremely effective play against Costa Rica, surprised more teams don't play that more pass-heavy style. It looked extremely effective. Now, of course, hindsight is handy now. Uh, and so in answering this, I, I will point out that Richard obviously is writing that after Spain won 7-0 against Costa Rica. <clears throat> and I suppose part of my answer as to why everyone doesn't do that is contained in what happened subsequently. But they continue to look good. Against Germany, that was, you know, I think a lot of people consider the best quality match of the tournament in terms of technical and tactical approach. But they went out in the knockout stages. And part of the problem with that style of football, oh, I'm, I'm going to go off on tangents here. I'll try and keep it as brief as I can. Part of the problem with that style of football is you favour possession, as you say, pass-heavy style. That can mean your build-up is slow. Now, that is okay if you are able to work those little gaps and have players of brilliant, incisive passing skills, and to be fair, Spain do have them, and work your way through a packed defence. But the problem is you do give those defenders a lot of time to get back and defend their penalty area. Now, in that Japan game, the problem for Spain was that Japan were quite happy to not have the ball and just hit them on the breakaway. And also that Japan, their defence was magnificently well organised and Spain just couldn't find the ways through. They couldn't penetrate them. They couldn't get around the signs. They, they couldn't find little pockets to set something up. <clears throat> so that style of football ultimately killed them off um, because Japan counteracted it so well. To, to look at it in a bigger picture, I, I guess you've got to go back to Guardiola, the Man City manager, when he started managing at Barcelona. And he introduced, it's not, he didn't invent possession football by any stretch of the imagination, but he certainly introduced the most extreme version anybody had seen at the top level, uh, where his Barcelona team just kept the ball. And his argument was partly that it's defensive, that if you've got the ball all the time, you can't concede goals. But, you know, that team was decorated by the likes of Leo Messi and Xavi, who was the ultimate playmaker, Andres Iniesta, who could do everything with the ball, um, and and that side, and the bursting pace of Dani Alves down the right, and uh, it was a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous team. And the football they played was glorious to the extent that I think it divided football in a lot of ways. The phrase used to describe it is tiki-taka, all these little passing movements. And the thing people don't really realise is tiki-taka was, was coined as an insult. People who didn't like this short passing, patient approach and sort of said it was like tippy-tappy football, little tiny touches everywhere. They don't take you anywhere. So tiki-taka, which is a phrase, a Spanish phrase, was meant as an insult to that style of football, but then has been embraced as a name for it, maybe naively. Um... It became a, a bit of a crusade. I think Barcelona have a tendency to do this, to try and add some sort of moral high ground. And it was also a notion, which you, you'll hear Guardiola say quite often in, in, after matches throughout his career, almost like we, we play the right way. 
This is the correct way to play football. Like it, like there is right and wrong in terms of style. Um, when it works, and with Barcelona, it tended to work. It was utterly fabulous to watch. Um, if you want a, a masterclass in it, the apotheosis of Tiki Taka, look up La Manita, yeah? Spanish for little hand. Uh, it's uh, Barcelona against Real Madrid. So, so massive, massive game. Real Madrid were a magnificent team. And essentially, spoiler alert, mute for 10 seconds if you don't want to hear the score already. Um, Barcelona destroyed them 5 0, Lamanita, little hand. Yeah, five goals and they're holding their hands at the end. He scored five. Messi is remarkable. Xavi, Adiola. And it's just. It's just breathtaking. And I remember watching it live on TV and my jaw was on the floor and I just couldn't believe it. I just wanted to talk to people about what I was seeing. It was astounding. So that's the apotheosis of it. The Spanish manager, Luis Aragonés, adopted that style. Slightly surprisingly, because as a player and up to that point as a manager, he was more of a you know, boot it hard and chase after it sort of player. And if someone's face gets in the way of my elbow, that's life. Um, he adopted this style. Wins the 2008 European Championships the 2010 World Cup and the 2012 European Championships. So basically the last two under uh, Vincent Del Bosque, Vincent of the Forest, um, who took it on a successful side and thought, well, okay, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Based on the Barcelona team with a couple of sprinklings of quality players added in. Um, but it can backfire as well. It, you can be too passive. You can keep the ball almost keeping the ball's sake. I think it works beautifully if you've got fabulous players. <clears throat> you have seen players at lower teams at lower levels attempt it, and sometimes it can work brilliantly. Um, but there is a risk involved in it, I would argue. And football has slightly moved on from it. A tactic's fascinating. People have come, always come up with counterbalances to what's the prevalent tactic. And Klopp's Liverpool team and Klopp's Dortmund teams maybe are the ultimate expression of, of the sort of opposite in many ways. Um, although his Liverpool team has evolved to now also control the ball, but the idea of Gagan pressing, of, of putting immediate pressure on the opposition the moment you lose the ball, in fact, Klopp's earlier iterations of, of his teams um, would be quite happy to lose the ball. So the exact opposite of Tiki Taka, because he would say famously, the best number 10 is pressing. So the best way to create chances is to put pressure on the other side when you've just lost the ball because the other side then think, oh, we're going to use it now. They lose it. They're out of position and you can hit them hard. It's a sort of concept. You may hear the phrase like a rest defence. Your rest defence is your shape when you've got the ball, but you may be thinking, okay, but we need to keep players in some defensive positions to make sure we're protected when we lose the ball because analysis shows that when you lose the ball, it's when you're most vulnerable to concede because you, you've thrown players ahead of the ball expecting the move to continue. You lose the ball, it breaks down, and you're vulnerable and can be attacked. So now the idea has become popular of what's our rest defence? What players are we leaving back? I think you could argue Wrexham are doing that very well with Tunnicliffe in the team where we don't commit Clueworth forwards to support McFadgen, we leave Tunnicliffe back a bit more, and so our rest defence maybe has that extra player, that extra layer of protection, and we don't get hit on the breakaway as much. Um, so the idea would be that Klopp 
would have a rigid rest defence shape when they've got the ball, so that as Liverpool are moving forwards or Dortmund are moving forwards, they're not in that much danger of the, being counter-attacked. And this would actually be quite progressive, ironically, where you'd have a lot of players near the ball. And then the moment you lost it, obviously you're vulnerable, but your shape means you shouldn't be. You press ferociously. And then the other side gain the ball. Their players start to move forwards, but you win the ball back. And they're in trouble. Um, and obviously that's the opposite of tiki-taka, looking after the ball. Sometimes when you see these Liverpool teams or Dortmund teams, and other teams played like that, Tuchel made his reputation, the ex-Chelsea manager playing like this. <coughs> Bielsa um, was the high priest of it. Um, yeah, he sometimes felt, oh, they're not looking that dangerous. They need to get the ball forwards, like Spain did against Japan, and then lose it and tempt the other side out, and then bang, pounce, win it, and then you'll have a chance to have space to create him. So... Tiki Taka divides people. That's the beauty of football, isn't it? I could say I could talk about that for days, but let's be honest, you really don't want me to, do you? I certainly wouldn't. Um, Darren's happy place says, sorry, I have to lean in. Seems that World Cup refs are much more willing to award penalty kicks from the final. I doubt if any of those penalties would be called in the Vanarama National League. Do you have any thoughts on how many more penalty kicks Paul Mullen would get with better refs? I think that's a great point. I do think there's a couple of issues here. One is the different ways that games are officiated in different countries. A lot of players talk about adapting when they come to Britain because referees tend, not always, but tend to let more go. They tend to be happy to say, oh, carry on, carry on. Um, so there is maybe that, that some referees will penalise contact. I love watching Spanish football, but the referees can infuriate me sometimes. The amount of fouls they give just because there was physical contact. Football is a physical contact game. In the National League, you'll see a lot more physical contact allowed than you will in international football. I think the other element is VAR. Um, I think VAR has twisted the game uh, in lots of ways. There are some rules that are clearly being brought in in order to accommodate VAR, and sometimes you almost feel like VAR referees are almost looking for contact. You know, the point of the foul is when you make contact with somebody, uh, generally, um, and with enough force to knock them over or to impede them. VAR sometimes feels like it's more, oh, did he touch him or not? Did he? Oh, he did just flick him there. Oh, it's a foul then. When actually, yeah, you're forgetting the fact there has been enough force. So I think VAR and maybe the referees, as a, as a consequence make creates more fouls perhaps than it maybe should do i don't know there have been some very very good var decisions in this world cup there have been some utterly appalling ones there have been a, a couple where the referees in the var room clearly didn't understand the rules which amazes me there was a handball given a penalty again i can't remember which game it was it was a group game where the player had fallen and landed on the floor um that was um uruguay wasn't it uh, and it hits his arm, but the rules say that if your hand's on the floor and the ball hits your arm, it's not a handball. And there was also one, which really infuriated me, where the rules definitely say if the ball hits your body and onto your arm, it can't be handball. And the ball clearly hit a player's leg, flew up, hit his hand, and the ref didn't give a penalty. VAR said, give a penalty. So I think that's part of it as well, to be honest. Darren's happy place. I like talking to locations. Beer, bear, beer, triple B's, says, um, 
Is there a breakdown on players or teams that get more penalties called in favour of them? Does this correspond with certain favoured teams? As a new football watcher, the ref seems to be able to dictate outcomes to some degree. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, I guess England fans would immediately point to the England-France game and for what it's worth, oh, I went to work on the next Monday and all the kids in school were talking about all the conspiracy theories. Oh, the referee's a France fan, isn't he? They found he's a France fan. No, he's from Brazil. He's from a different continent. He's not a France fan, guys. That's just people talking rubbish on the so- on social media. Um. Was he biased? No, of course he wasn't biased. Was he good? No, <laughs> he was not. He made a lot of poor decisions, I thought. And England were unfortunate that a few went against them. Um, but then VAR didn't intervene either, except when it gave the second England penalty, which England missed anyway. The ref, I didn't quite see how the ref missed that one. Um, in terms of favouring certain teams, well, for... You'll, the problem with analysis here is analysis in football is closely protected and tends to be kept by clubs for their own purposes. They don't want other clubs to get the benefit or countries of their analysis. I'm quite sure in terms of stats, you'd be able to twist them to prove whatever you wish. I mean, how I always used to think that like teams like Liverpool and Man United they always used to say that they get more penalties at home than they should do. Maybe. And the numbers would tend to stack up that way. But then, you know, if the best team in the country is dominating play and a lot of it takes place in the opposing penalty area, there's a much greater chance of them getting penalties, isn't there? So, uh, you know, when you say, oh, Man United and the Ferguson, they had 17 penalties in Old Trafford this season and they only conceded three. Yeah, well, that might be because at Old Trafford, you know, they're in their pomp and teams aren't getting into their penalty area much. Um so yeah, I'm a little. I've got to be honest. I could dig out some analysis. I'm sure. I suspect it will show that the the better teams get more penalties. But that might be because the better teams are dominating games more. I suspect. Um, Jared Phelan. Speaking of the USA, I've been saying for a couple of years that I honestly believe we'll win a, in the world. We'll win a World Cup by 2038. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. I, I think that makes perfect sense. <clears throat> you look at the current US team. And I'd say this about Canada as well. I think it's very exciting looking at the next World Cup, hosted by, well, all of North America, really, um, that the Canada and the US teams have got progressive coaches who are intelligent, and obviously it's going to hang on for another four years, but I'd like to see that, and coherent young squads with loads of young talent in it. Um, they also, there are lots of signs now, aren't there, that, that football, soccer, is really starting to, in terms of popularity, threaten some of the more traditional sports uh, in, in the US and in Canada. And also that, you know, obviously it, it, it was such vast population, especially in the US, you, you do have real scope that even if only certain sections of the population pick up, I'm, 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 I'm preaching to the choir here, aren't I? You know, the classic thing about Hispanic population favour football. Yeah, but then there's a lot of Hispanic people in the US. I mean, one of the things that terrifies Trump is the idea of uh, Spanish being spoken by more people in the US than English, isn't it? So, I, I agree, Jared. I think that the US are a coming power. I think the MLS is underrated by Europeans. I think we still have a cliché idea of it being a place where good players go to retire. That's absolute nonsense. Um, and yeah, I I really feel that certainly the US will become a more major power, and I also think that uh, Canada's current crop of young players have the potential 
to to achieve something excellent. I was I was really disappointed that Canada lost their games. I thought they played really well, and I I massively enjoyed watching them. That they had a very intelligent approach. <laughs> I just look at some of those players and think, all right, give them four years' experience, bring a few more good young players through. I uh, said so that that's potentially a real team. That is. Uh, so yeah, I'm 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 hopeful. I agree. Father Daniel says, um, "Oh, my eyesight's going here. Should make sure we give an oh gosh, yeah, we should make sure we give an acknowledgement to the passing of American journal at Grant Wall in Qatar. He did more for football over there than just about any other individual over the last twenty years." Dead at 48, brilliant writer on issues on and off the field, will be sadly missed. Yes, um, I, I'm very familiar with his work. I used to love reading him. Uh, a really erudite, intelligent writer who, as you rightly say, Father Daniel, fully was aware that to understand and write cogently about a sport, you need to understand the outside world something which i think sometimes people are very scared of I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit bothered by how some commentators say uh respond to actual world events almost like oh we, we don't have the right to comment on this politics no man you can't keep politics out of sport that's nonsense the only people who genuinely argue that are people who have dodgy intentions for sport and want to make out that they're not being political i'm sorry they're, they're out of order. Uh, politics is life. Sport is life. Uh, you know, I think Qatar is a good example there. The tournament, for a number of reasons, should not have gone to Qatar. And it's a shame because I think having a World Cup in an Arab country is brilliant. Uh, there's a lot of good idea, uh, good to be said about spreading the competitions around and letting the world get its chance to host. But the circumstances around the Qatar World Cup are unacceptable. You know, the people saying, oh, keep politics out of sport are the people who support homophobia, who aren't bothered about migrant workers dying as long as the stadiums are shiny. Um, yeah, it's absolute bull, isn't it? Um, Grant Val understood that. Well, we know that from the stand he was making in the, the tournaments with his, his rainbow jersey. Um, and I, I, his work makes me think of, there was an old cricket writer in the Caribbean. He was a sort of cricket writer and philosopher called C.L.R. James. And his famous quote was, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know? And I think that was absolutely correct. He wrote the seminal book, Beyond the Boundary, which is a sort of pondering. And I was sort of referring to that phrase, cricket's place in society. And of course, being from the Caribbean, there were racial issues that he had to address there. <coughs> cricket being very much the, the, the white British Empire gentleman's sport being played by... Afro-Caribbeans who obviously have been brought over initially in their, part, in their family history as slaves and so there was a massive sort of socio-political element of it which he acknowledged and wouldn't shy away from. Granval was the same and in the way that to sadly the very end he was making a point about justice and, and inclusion um, and an excellent football writer as well because of that perspective and so yes I totally agree sadly missed that uh, we, we should have got another three or four decades of brilliant writing out of him what a, what a sad sad shame right i'm gonna try and juggle laszlo oh he's given up <laughs> don't blame him that's <coughs> a man handling him blind ref mike the ref um was talking about now this is one uh i, I love this it was a comment during a wrexham game on one of my bugbears 
which referred to the World Cup, and I want to just talk about it anyway, because I don't think I've fully expounded on this. Balls going over the line or ball being in the corner quadrant. British football fans go nuts if they think the ball is not in the quadrant on the corner of the pitch. And it drives me insane, because almost always it is. The player will put it, it looks outside, because you've got to look from above to see if the ball is actually in the quadrant. So if you look from above, if the edge of the ball is touching the line, it's inside the quadrant for a corner. And fans go nuts and linesmen will move the ball, tell the players to move it. And yet the fact of the matter is, if you're watching on the video, that graphic I've got up, the one that says incorrect, you nudge it a tiny bit, it'll be okay, it'll be touching the line. But if you then sort of flip down and go pitch level, it will look like it's outside because it's where the ball touches the ground is outside the quadrant. Does that make sense? I hope it does. <coughs> and um, so, for example, I got a picture up on the video again. That looks way out of the out of the quadrant. The ball there. Imagine it from above. Does the edge of the ball touch the line? I reckon that's probably borderline touch and go. Maybe it's just outside, but if it is, it'll be fractions of, a, of an inch. So, that irks me. And then the Japan goal that they scored, uh, which w appeared to go over the line against Spain. Now, if you watch the ITV coverage, um, I thought it was awful. They just decided this is a, a story, and they were pumping it up and kept saying, we've been shown nothing to prove that the ball uh, didn't go over the line, and therefore it shouldn't have been allowed. It just gave the goal. Well, we were shown pictures that showed the ball hadn't crossed the line, quite frankly, and also they um, <coughs> tried to imply it was a conspiracy, which it plainly was not. Um, why would FIFA want to knock a big country out of the World Cup like Spain? Um, the photos that have come up, show so you, know, you can imagine looking at the first one is it touching the line looks like it is to me look at the bar that picture is not dead on it's not along the line so if you if you reconfigure it if you shift that camera across a little bit the, the ball will definitely be touching the line um but you could from but from down below think it's out um or from by varying camera angles so this is the other problem isn't it people will just like i said about statistics manipulate things so from certain angles, it looks like it's miles out. So you, you put that picture and say, oh, robbery. But no, no, it's in. And that's a better angle, I think, to show this final picture. That ball has not crossed the line. So uh, it drives me mad, that does. Anyways, I love this. Kyle Mjeld says... Watching the World Cup, oops, it is, makes me appreciate Toza so much. Every throw in for Exum is a set piece when 25 yards of the goal line. Yeah, absolutely, Kyle. It's interesting, isn't it? Long throws tend to be quite rare, but they're so effective, or can be if you do it right. Toza is particularly effective because he can sort of spear it in with pace. You don't get many people who can throw as far as him, and a lot of them who do, it's quite loopy. So Tozer is a remarkable weapon. A lot of teams seem to eschew it anyway. I think maybe valuing possession, they just want to get the ball down at their feet and, and move it around. But it's a <clears throat> it's good to be able to vary your style and do that. The only I was watching out for this, the only innovative I thought use of throw-ins in the World Cup was your Wales. And um, Con Roberts has got a longish throw, nothing like Tozer. But I noticed that he would do something you see occasionally, but you don't much maybe because it's a little risky. But if you execute it right, you can really open the picture up. 
is that everyone expects throw-ins to go down the line or diagonally towards the box. And he would get the ball and try and take a quick long throw into the centre circle. Because while defences are naturally lining up down the line and towards the box, and that corner of the pitch is quite crowded, it can mean there's a lot of space in the middle of the pitch. And Roberts did that a few times. I don't know if it was just him being opportunistic or if they talked about it, but Roberts often would rush across to take the throw, grab the ball, throw it over players and, and find someone like Ramsey in space in the centre of the pitch. And theoretically, there was a chance then for Wales to get forwards quickly before the defence out of shape or maybe switch it on further and really pull the defence around. I, I liked that, but that was the only innovative throwing sort of routine I saw anybody doing in the World Cup. Um, Rex American Idiot. Uh, said, thoughts on the expansion plans for the next World Cup, uh, building it from 32 to 48 games, from 64 to 104 matches, 100% against it, absolutely despicable, to be honest. I don't think that's too strong a word. It's a shocking idea. Why? Well, uh, think back to the group stage. Remember that last the last games of the group stages were phenomenal, weren't they? They were so dramatic. All that's gone if you have this format. And that's why FIFA suddenly have started talking about, oh, maybe we'll tweak it a bit. Because they were talking about the sort of format where you'll have two teams going through out of groups of three. So what? I mean, so if you're half decent, you get two teams seeded lower than you to batter. And even if you mess one of them up, you'll still go through because one of the teams in your group will be very weak. Boring, pointless football anyway. Uh, plus, if you do try to have bigger groups, what they'll do, as they've done in previous World Cups, is the idea the top two go through and then the third-place teams will have their records compared and the teams with the most points and goal differences go through. Firstly, that's boring. Uh, there's, there's no knockout life-or-death drama like in this World Cup where two teams go into it knowing if we do this, we're through. If we don't do this, we're out. Or <clears throat> we have to keep an eye on a simultaneous match and everything is fluid. That's exciting, isn't it? You're jeopardy. You got the, the, your fate can turn in a moment. Um, oh, we'll try and get a good third place uh, record because chances are like sort of eight out of ten groups the third place team will go through anyway. Oh, God, boring is that? And then waiting to find out. But, oh, you know, where's the drama waiting for other groups to end? Uh, just painful. Um, as well, it essentially means if you win the first game, you're going to be through because generally a third place team of three points goes through in these scenarios. Uh, for example, I mean, a nice feeling for me, don't get me wrong. 2016 Wales and the European Champions win the first game against Slovakia. And you think, oh, we're through now. We should be, really. It would take a double catastrophe in our next two games for us not to be through. Um, so, you know, it takes all the fun out of it. Why are they doing it? All the wrong reasons. They've got a, a format which already is bloated, but it at least brings drama. It works. And... The thing is that, A, you'll make more money if there's more games, so money. And secondly, power. Gianni Infantino, the FIFA general secretary, knows that if he offers more places in the World Cup, there's more money to spread among more countries. More countries get to go to the World Cup and he gets their votes so he can stay in power. It's all for the wrong reasons. It's all anti-football. And the tragic thing is that that's how it will always remain. Uh, Happy days. Cheer up, guys. Wrexham are playing again soon. I love this from Mike. 
he's got a story about the World Cup qualifier, and it was Wales against Spain in 1985, which is a really famous game at the racecourse. Wales hammering Spain 3-0, famous goal by Mark Hughes, who hits a scissor volley in from the edge of the area at the cop end. Apparently, the Spanish team demanded bottled water. I can assure you, in the 80s, bottled water was not a thing in Britain. However, uh, the police sergeant who was in charge filled up a load of bottles with tap water and gave them that. They didn't notice, and he takes full credit for the win. Quite right, too. Poisoning them with good Wrexham Gwenville water. Absolutely. That's why Arcanada let in that stupid first goal by Ian Rush. <laughs> it's brilliant, that. I love it. Don't drink out the Gwenny, kids. All right? Trust me. Ocular pat down and throwing the Gwenny. That's all it's good for. I saw the most stupid thing I ever saw was that <coughs> Rivulet Road, which is a road down the side of the town centre, which has a rivulet under, the Gwenville, um, it flooded one day when I was going into work, and it turned out what had happened, there's a, ta there's a bridge, it's only a very, there's a rivulet, it's a very small stream, and there's a low, very low bridge, you don't even really notice it when you're driving, it's just a road, but underneath it, there is a small bridge just to let this narrow stream go through, and it had been blocked, and the road was flooded, and you think, how is there enough water in the Gwenville to, to flood this area? And the reason apparently was a bloke had been doing some building at home and then um, <coughs> thought, oh, I've got leftover cement powder. So he went there and he just tipped it over the side of the bridge and grew, got rid of that. Hey. What happens to cement powder when water meets it? Yeah. So he basically concreted up under the bridge. I just think that's a wonderfully stupid, stupid local story. Um, but tales any, do we really need to send pundits out to these countries when they could get better views of the match on the telly back in the UK? Well, yeah, that's very true, isn't it, really? Seems to be an awful lot of people out there, didn't they? Um, yeah, yeah. But, well, I, I, you can get a good view of the game at a match. You can see things you can't see in the camera. But, um, yeah, yeah, if you've got a point, and if they really wanted to make a point, maybe the BBC could have said, well, we won't send anybody there because we don't condone the circumstances they got the World Cup in or... The circumstances the stadiums were built in, but hey. Um, <laughs> I like. <coughs> pardon me. Matt Schusler saying, I didn't know Deadpool worked for FIFA in a fantastic picture of Gianluini Colina, who was a superb referee, very strong, famous for his scary stare, which Matt has spotted in the picture. Looks like a fire damaged uh, Ryan Reynolds uh, in the film, not, not imagining it in real life. Um, and he's now in charge of the referees in the World Cup. And, yeah, I think he's a, he's a strong presence, although we had a typical thing in the, this World Cup where they'll introduce an initiative and it'll be carried out with zeal for a week and then forgotten because the link to the story that Matt uh, retweeted is FIFA orders World Cup referees to add time at the end of games. And, yeah, they were adding 10, 12 minutes on, weren't they, at the start, which is accurate, to be fair, and sensible. But everyone, I think, quickly realised, I don't enjoy these games dragging out so long. And they quickly went back to normal, didn't they? Happens every World Cup. And Jared says, I know we all want... Oh, I, I know we all want Mark Griffiths to commentate uh, the video live streams. But honestly, I want to know how we can get him as an optional commentator on FIFA games. <clears throat> do you mean the console games or on the World Cup? Um, I'll do either. Look, I'll do anything for cash. And unlike Meatloaf, I will do that. So, hey, what can I say? Jarrod, speak to your people in FIFA. And Guillermo, or Guillermo, depending on if you're South American or not, Guillermo, LNS, 
says, if Wales make the 2026 tournament, will Rob McElhenney host the Cymru team at his home in Los Angeles? Of course he will. It's, it's his duty as, as a, a convert to Welshness. Absolutely. Right. That was great fun. I really enjoyed that. I love doing these podcasts. And I love the questions you come up with. So thank you for bearing with me through another lengthy World Cup Ask Wrexham podcast. Uh, normal service will be resumed after the Scunthorpe game with a proper Ask Wrexham as well. I did say this was a bonus. So I hope you enjoyed that match and I'll see you soon. This is the Final Whistle podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team.